pray. Um, Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you um, for your goodness to us. We thank you uh, for your word to us. Father, we thank you that the joy that we have in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the partnership that we have in the gospel in him. Father, we pray that as we as we study this letter over the, no, uh, the next nine weeks, that you would see, you would help us to see where true joy is found. Uh, Father, by your Spirit, you impress these words upon our hearts. That you give me helpful words to say, and you would change each of us uh, by this word uh, to us. And we pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. That's true, isn't it? That we um, we live in a society where uh, everyone is peddling joy. Isn't that true? You know that uh, that promise of getting that deep sense of satisfaction that lots of the advertisers seem to hang out to us all the, all the time. It seems like joy is like a product you can buy some of the time. Uh, I don't know if you realise this, but it seems like you sort of tap and go with your credit card, and you can get a little bit of joy. And then, but it seems like often I don't know if you feel this, but uh, sometimes with that temporary sense of joy that we get is exactly that. We sort of tap and go and we get our experience or we get the joy that comes from the purchase. But then all of a sudden, as quickly as that temporary sense of joy came, it seems to leave us just as quickly. Especially when you realize how bad tap and go is. Do you know that you can spend $99 just by tapping someone's credit card and going, right? And you don't even need the... Do you, know, do you guys know this? 99 bucks. See, I lose my credit card all the time, right? So ask Lenore, like... Actually, I know where it is right now. I'm going to grab it straight after this. But I lose it all the time. Do you know that if someone has your credit card, they can tap and go right up to 99 bucks, and you won't even know, and they can do it from store to store to store to store. Anyway, that freaks me out, but I still use it. But it seems like that's how you get joy. You just tap and you go. But often that satisfaction in life that we're looking for, it just it seems to go as quickly as we're looking for it. And the problem is, is that I don't know about you, but the next Monday rolls around, or, the, or this week, the next Tuesday rolls around, and what happens? You start looking for joy again, until the next weekend when you tap and go, and tap and go, and tap and go, and then, well, you feel depressed the next Monday morning, and you look for a bit of joy again, and then you tap and go, tap and go the next weekend. Is, is this anything like what it feels like? And so where is it that we get long-lasting, soul-satisfying, deep Joy. Well, that's what Paul has to, it's what he's talking about in the letter of Philippians. There's more said about joy in this letter than just about all the rest of the gospel. And so we, I guess if we want to know where we can find that sense of long-lasting, satisfying joy, then this is a great letter to come to. But as we come to this letter, you've got to realize what we're actually coming to. And so it's very important that we realize who this letter is written to, when it was written, and why it was written. I'll give you an example. I was speaking to a friend this week and uh, they said that they just went and saw Les Mis, you know, the musical movie. And I, and I asked them, you know, what, what did you think of this movie? And they said, well, you know, how did you find it? And, and they said, well, you know, at the start there was this, they were singing and there's a few songs and I was sort of listening along and then just, you know, 10 minutes in, there's just another song and then another song and, and 20 minutes in, there's just another song, another song and, <laughs> then they say, and then I finally realised it was a musical, right? <laughs> so just in case I ruined it for you, right? Now Phil reminded me of this other. It was originally a book by Victor Hugo, so I could see how you could be fooled. But just in case, when you're going to the movies, Lay Miz at the moment is two hours and forty-five minutes of singing. If that's not your thing, 
don't go. You've got to realise what you're getting yourself in for uh, before you get there. And that's exactly the same with Paul's letter to the Philippians. Yeah, Paul's writing to a church that he established in Philippi. He's writing in about 61 AD. He'd planted this church 10 years before. And do you know that Philippi was the first city in Europe where Paul preached the gospel? Right? He went there, and Philippi it was actually named after Philip of Macedon II, who was, of course, whose father? Alexander the Great. Right? And he saw this area of Philippi, and it was rich, and it had gold mines and silver mines. And so he decided, I want a bit of that. And as you do when you conquer a city, what do you do? You name it after yourself. So he named it Philippi um, after himself. But, of course, all dynasties don't last forever. And a couple of centuries later, the Romans are in control of Philippi. Two centuries after that, Paul arrives in this city. And it's fascinating how Paul got to be there. He's travelling with Luke, who wrote Luke's Gospel and Acts. He's with Silas. He's with Timothy. The four of them and perhaps others are travelling around the Mediterranean. It's crazy how he got there. According to Luke that we just read before in Acts chapter 16, they're travelling around the area. They're sort of travelling through Phrygia and Galatia and they're wanting to go and preach the Gospel in Asia. But all of a sudden, we're not sure how, God the Holy Spirit makes it obvious to them that they shouldn't go there. So they think, oh, what do we do now? So they go, we want to preach somewhere else. So they head north, they go through Bithynia, but all of a sudden they can't go there because the Holy Spirit somehow stops them from going there. So uh, at that time, what does Paul do? Well, he goes with Silas and Timothy and they head down to Troas, which is a coastal port, and they just hang out there for the night. And maybe Paul goes to sleep pretty discouraged. I mean, he's wanting to take the gospel over the place and he seems to be prevented. All of a sudden, in his dream that night, he sees a vision. A big, I don't know if it's big, but a Macedonian man in his vision, standing right in front of him. And the Macedonian man says, cross over to the sea, to Macedonia and help us. Preach to us. And so Paul wakes up, no doubt. He gets up early and he starts to fix the boat and he starts to get things ready and, and perhaps the others got up and go, what are you doing, Paul? Like, <laughs> like we're here in Troas. And he says, I am convinced by God that I need to go and preach the gospel in Macedonia. So they do, they get the boat ready. They sail off from Troas. They head across the sea. They arrive, they walk 10 k's up or 10 miles up the road and they end up in Philippi. The gospel had never got to this place before. And what does Paul do? Well, he does what he normally does in any city where the gospel has never been. He goes to find Jewish people to explain to them in the synagogue about Jesus being the Messiah. But there was no Jewish people. There was no synagogue. So on the first Sabbath, what does he do? He hears that there's a women's prayer group just outside the city gates. So he goes and talks to them. And they're sitting by the river. And he talks to these women and explains to them about Jesus. And Lydia is the first woman who's converted in the city of Philippi. What what does Luke say? The Lord opened her heart and she became a Christian. So she said, why don't you come back to my house? They started a church in her house. And this is what happens next. It wasn't plain sailing. The church started to grow. But look at Acts chapter 16. Flick over there with me. So Acts chapter 16, verse 16. This is what happened next as the church started to grow that Paul had planted. It says this. Acts 16 uh, and verse 16. So once, as we were on our way to prayer, uh, a slave girl met us who had a spirit of prediction. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune-telling. So this woman was uh, demon-possessed and she could tell the future. 
verse 17. As she followed Paul and us, she cried out, These men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are the slaves of the Most High God. And she did this for many days. But Paul was greatly aggravated and turning to the evil spirit said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her right away. He healed her of a demon possession. But when her owners saw that their, their hope of profit was gone, because she took, couldn't tell the future anymore, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Bringing them before the chief magistrates, they said, These men are seriously disturbing our city. They are Jews and are pro- promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or to practice. Then the mob joined in the attack against them, and the chief magistrate stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had inflicted many blows on them, they threw them into jail, ordering the jailer to keep them securely guarded. Receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison and secured their feet in stocks. So here they are in Philippi, maybe the dark part of the prison, you know, because that's the inner part, and, and Paul's there. Uh, with Silas and his, and his feet are chained together in a city that he doesn't know much about. What would you do in that situation? Well, I guess what came very naturally to Paul is that he prayed and he sung. Did you see that? <laughs> he starts praying, he starts singing hymns to God, and all of a sudden the rest of the people in the jail, they're listening to these hymns and these prayers by these two seemingly crazed men. All of a sudden there's an earthquake And at that point, the doors of the jail break open. And at that point, the jailer wakes up. He sees that the doors of the jail are broken open. And what does he decide to do? He decides to kill himself. Because I guess he'd rather plunge the sword into himself than have the Romans plunge it into him for him, uh, for letting the prisoners go free. But at that point, what does Paul say? He says, what, what does he say? He says, don't do it, don't do it, we're still here. What do you mean they're still there? The jail doors had busted open. Surely he'd run out, but they were still there. The jailer, what does he do? He comes and he falls at Paul's feet. And he says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And on that day, the jailer became a Christian. He was so excited about it. He takes Paul and Silas and he invites them back to his house. And they feast together. Because that's what we do, isn't it? Any time that someone becomes a Christian, what do you do? You chuck the biggest party the world has ever seen because nothing better than that could possibly happen. And they're excited. And the jailer washes Paul and Silas's wounds and he gets baptised on that day. It was beautiful. And although the officials in the town, they knew that Paul and Silas hadn't done anything wrong, they said, look, can you just please leave this place? Can you please just leave Philippi and just leave us alone? And what does Paul do? He does. He goes back to the church at Lydia's house. He encourages them for a little while, and then he leaves. It's now ten years later. Ten years later. And do you know where Paul is right now when he's writing this letter? Who can tell me? Probably. What's that? He's probably in prison in Rome. So he's in jail again. He's been in jail in Philippi. He's now in jail in Rome. In the in-between time, he'd seen them a couple of times. He's writing back to them. And do you know what Paul's manner of feeling is? Do you know the the single emotion that he uses to describe himself? He's happy. He's joyful. And do you know that that's what many people find fascinating about this letter in the Bible? I don't know about you and the last time you read it. But Paul seems to find joy in so many things that it just 
oozes out of this letter and every single chapter and every single page, he's happy. He's joyful. And I'm not talking about that temporary sense of joy. We all know where to get that. Do you know how to get that? Right? Tomorrow, day off, right? If you want some temporary joy, go to the movies. Right? It's awesome. <laughs> go to the beach. Spend some time with friends. These are all good things. Temporary joy. Yeah, you know how to get it. Take a holiday off work if you need it. Yeah? See Les Mis if you like musicals. <laughs> right? If you don't, don't see it. Yeah? We all know how to get temporary joy. But how do you get that long-lasting, soul-satisfying contentment with where we are in life? Where do you get that from? Paul seems to get joy from situations and in times which we don't seem to sometimes understand. For example, in chapter 1, he derives an enormous sense of joy from having a partnership in the gospel with Christians that he never sees. How does that work? At the end of chapter 1, he can say, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. How can you say that? How can in this world, can you say, if I lose my job, if I lose my family, if I lose my possessions, if I lose my house, if I lose everything that there is in this world, and I die, and all I get in return is Jesus, I can say, gain. How do you say that? That's what he's saying, to live is Christ, to die is gain. How do you say that? Heaven in chapter 3, how is it that we can experience suffering and at the same time be joyful? How's that possible? How is humble service in chapter 2 the key to long-lasting Christian joy? How's that possible? Is it possible to find joy in the things that my mates don't? Paul seems to be able to swim upstream as a Christian and to be into things that other people aren't, and yet he's joyful. How is that possible? Or in chapter 4, he says, is it possible to be joyful and exhausted? Paul seems to say yes. Is it possible to be joyful and broke and to have no money? Paul seems to be able to say yes. And so when lots of us read this letter, we wonder where does this simple joy that exudes from him come from? And how do we get it? And I know what lots of you are thinking at this point. You're thinking, ah, 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 Luther. No, no, no. You can't explain an emotion like that. Joy just happens to you. You know, stuff happens to you in your life and you're either sad or you're happy and you can't control it. It's just something that's outside of me. I think, as I've read this letter, Paul would challenge that. He would say that we can actually fight for joy. We can actually decide the things that are actually going to give us long-lasting joy. Joy. But let's have a look at the start of this letter. Have a look with me. Look at, so flip back over to Philippians chapter 1 uh, and verse 1, and we'll see the, just have a look at the first eight verses of this letter. So it says, Paul and Timothy, they're slaves of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who were in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. You know, like any Christian, Paul and Timothy can actually call themselves slaves of Christ Jesus. And saints at exactly the same time. If you're a Christian, you're a slave. Do you know what that means? And it means that we are at the beck and call of our master, Jesus. We are at his disposal. They are for us and we are for each other. Every single Christian is a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. But you know why it's so good to be a slave to Christ? Because we're also saints. God has made us holy in him by the work of the Lord Jesus. We are slaves to him. 
but he's made us holy. We are slaves and saints. But after 10 years, and now in jail, Paul can write this. Um, Look at verse 2 to them. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer. So Paul's saying every time that he thinks about them, every time that whenever he prays for them, right, he's smiling. I mean, why does he feel this way about them? Well, he gives a few reasons. The first reason he thinks this way about them is because of their partnership in the gospel. Look at verse 5. He says, I pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel with me from the first day until now. From that first day by the river when Lydia became a Christian to this, to this day right now when Paul is sitting in jail and every day in between, he thanks God because of their partnership in the gospel. Um, some translations might have fellowship in the gospel. And this brought Paul enormous joy. Uh, what's he talking about? Well, the word partnership, it's sort of that, you know, that business idea. You know when you go into partnership with someone? What, why is that such an important thing? Because you're in it together, right? If, if it's going to make it, you're going to do it together. If it's going to fail, you're going to do it together. You share the risk, you're in this together. And that's what Paul is saying about his relationship with the Philippians. And we know this, is that because you know we're now in the era of international companies and the internet, that you can actually have a partnership with someone across the other side of the world that you never, ever see. Uh, I'll give you an example of this. When I worked in business, I actually was in partnership with someone that I never, ever saw. There was this guy, we had an office in Paris, right? And he was the financial controller in Paris and I was the financial controller in Sydney. And we would speak to each other every single day, just about. And he'd ring me up and he'd say, good day, mate, or whatever. He's attempted sort of, you know, he could speak English. My French wasn't very good. And I'd say bonsoir. And because he'd stick around in the office till about 7, 8 p.m. to call me. And I'd be in the office at about 8 a.m. to talk to him. And we were partners in the business together. We, we never saw each other face to face. But we were great mates. We'd talk about all sorts of stuff. And, and, I don't know, as sad as this sounds, we really wanted to make Mojo the best advertising company in the world. And we were invested in it, and we were working at it together. And there was really a sense of partnership, even though I never saw him face to face. They never let me go to Paris on business, so I wonder why. Yeah, I almost got there. I left to do ministry too early. But um, almost got my trip to Paris. But there you go. But we were partners in business together, right? This is Paul and the Philippians. But do you think his partnership in the gospel with them stopped when he left 10 years ago? No. Um, It was a practical partnership. Look at verse 7. Look what he says. He says, It's right for me to think this way about all of you, because I have you in my heart, and you are all partners with me in grace. I mean, they showed enormous grace to him. Where did they show it? Look at the rest of verse 7. Both in my imprisonment. Uh, do you know that there were the church that was most generous towards Paul, whether he was in jail or in any of his missionary journeys, was the Philippians. No church was more generous in supporting him financially than them. Uh, they sent Epaphroditus to care for his needs in jail. That's just what they did. They shared in grace with him. And that's true, isn't it? That when, you know when we get the gospel and we enjoy Jesus together, What is it that we most want other people to do? We want other people to enjoy Jesus together. And we'll partner with anyone who wants to make that happen. And we'll give to make that happen. 
And the Philippian church gave and gave and gave to make that happen. They were also partners and it was in great joy. Look at the rest of verse 7. In his defense and his establishment of the gospel. I mean, for the last 10 years, Paul's been out establishing churches, planting them all over the place, defending the gospel. People are saying to Paul, you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, do you? And he said, yeah, I, I believe that and let me tell you why. Paul, you don't believe that Jesus is the one way to God, do you? And he said, yeah, I believe that. And let me tell you why. He's been defending and establishing the gospel. He's been doing it all over the Mediterranean. They've been doing it in the Philippi. We are doing it in Sydney. Because that's what we are. The reason why Paul wrote this letter is he wanted his partnership with the gospel with the Philippians to continue, just as it had from the first day when Lydia became a Christian. And that's what we are. We're partners in the gospel together. Right At the bank, we are partners in the gospel. At snack. Uh, do you know... Um, our congregations, we hardly ever see all of each other, right? You know, there's five congregations at St. George North. We have one at Carlton that meets at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning, one at Bexley North that meets at 10.30 on a Sunday morning. There's one at Bexley that meets at 10.30 on a Sunday morning. There's one at 8.30 that meets at Bexley on a Sunday morning. And our five congregations, we hardly ever see each other, right, except when you all come to the big day out and we'll all see each other there. But we are all partners in the gospel together. We all give to the one common pool. Why? Because we're committed to this area and the gospel ministry that goes on here. You are partners with people with the gospel that you never see. But it's the gospel that makes you a partner with them. Not only that, we're partners with people all over the world, right? In Tanzania, in Spain, in France, in Japan, in PNG, in the Philippines. We're in this together. Doesn't that make you smile? Doesn't that give you great joy? You know, each week when I pray, I pray for our church, and as I, um, Phil's been a great model for me in this, in praying for every single one of you through the week, right? As we do that, do you know it gives me great joy to know that we're in partnership in the gospel? We're all in different spaces, we're all in different places during the week, but we are partners in the gospel. Like on Tuesday, some of us, we're going to go to all sorts of different places. Some of us are going to head off to school. Some of us are going to go and work in the city. Some of us are going to head towards the library lawn at uni and bludge, just like you've been doing for the last little while. right? And uh, some of you are going to be at home. Some of you are going to be in all different sorts of spaces, right? We'll all be in different places, but we're all partners in the gospel. And it makes me smile. Does it make you smile knowing that? That this week I know that you are out there sharing the joy that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ with other people in our area. I know that you're doing that. And you know that I'm out there sharing the greatest source of joy that we have, and that is the Lord Jesus. And we're all doing that. We're partners in the gospel together, and it makes you smile, and it gives us great joy, doesn't it? Uh, the other thing that gives Paul great joy is knowing God's faithfulness and the confidence that he has in God's work. Look at verse 6 uh, with me. This is why else he prays with joy. He says, I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You could easily miss when you start reading about this church that it is a church that had no worries. You know, it's just an easy church. There was never any problems, but that's not the case at all. This church is under threat. When we get to chapter 3, we see that they're under threat of false teaching. We know that there's persecution and suffering. We know that there's disunity. There's two women in the church who are fighting, and Paul says they've got to sort it out. 
There's all sorts of threats to the faith of this church, just like ours, right? It's not just that this is a cushy, sort of cruisy sort of church that makes Paul joyful. No, he's joyful for another reason. Look at verse 3 with me again. He says, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you. And then what does he say in in verse 6? He says, I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You see that phrase, it sort of gives you a bit of a window into what it is to be a genuine Christian. It's almost one of the key descriptors of what it means to be a genuine Christian in the New Testament. See, the Bible often talks about those who would make a profession of faith in Christ, but don't see it through to the end. It just doesn't work out. For example, at the end of John chapter 2, Jesus is in Jerusalem. It's near the Passover festival. And many people were trusting in Jesus' name. They say, wow, look at your miracles. Look at your signs. We believe in you, Jesus. And what does he say? He does not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew what was in them. He knew that their profession of faith was not real. And that happens. And then a few chapters later, Jesus says this. He said to the Jews who believed in him, he said, if you continue in my word, then you really are my disciples. In other words, genuine Christians, by definition, stick. They stick at it. Now, what that doesn't mean, because I just worried you, right? What that doesn't mean is that our growth as Christians is always like this. It's always fantastic. It's always plain sailing. We're never going through any difficulties. We're never going through any doubts in our faith. Not at all. Often our growth is like this. But genuine faith sticks it out to the end. It perseveres. The writer of the Hebrews says this. He says, For we have become companions of the Messiah if we hold firmly in the end to the reality that we believed at the start. And that's not true of everyone. Right? Now, not everyone holds to what they believe at first all the way to the end. So how do we stick? Right? How do we stick it out until the day of Christ Jesus when he returns? How do we do that? Well, Paul is confident that they will persevere. Why? Because it's God who's preserving them. You see that in verse 6? Right? He thanks God with joy because what he's seen God begin in the Philippians, God is actually going to carry through to the end. He gives thanks to God because it's God who preserves us to the last day. It's not actually the strength of our hold on God that keeps us close to him. It's the strength of his hold on us that keeps us close to him. Any faith that you have and that I have is a gift from God. It's not from you. He holds on to us. We don't hold on to him. And you know what? God is not a quitter. The work that he's begun in you and in us, he's going to carry it through to the day of completion when Jesus comes back again. He's not a quitter. Now, I I, I swore that this year I wouldn't be a quitter. Who he had New Year's resolutions? Only Larissa. Come on, tell me you had a New Year's resolution. Put your hand up. Right? Keep it up. Come on, admit it. All right? Who had a New Year's resolution? Who kept, put it down if you haven't kept it? All right, the three people in this room with willpower got on you. This is the thing. I swore this year that I wouldn't be a quitter. I have categories for my New Year's resolutions. Right? And one of them, under the fitness category, there's multiple categories. 
But under the fitness category was no more soft drink. I decided that this was the year that I would have victory over the soft drink and, and, and I bought a soda stream so that I could make soda water for myself. And this is the thing. And I thought, this year, this is the one, right? And how long do you think I lasted? Right. So New Year's Day was really hot, right? <laughs> it was just... And I still, I've still got the soda stream, but I tell you what, many soft drinks have gone since then, right? But that's not God, right? He will keep us to the end, right? And that just makes Paul happy. It makes John happy. In 3 John 4, I don't know if you've read that lately, John says, I have no greater joy than this, than my children are walking in the truth. And it makes you think when you read something like that, where is it that we get our greatest joy? Right? We might express it differently. Some of us are a bit more out there. Some of us are a little bit more subdued. But where do you get your sense of settled satisfaction with life? Where do you get it? Personal success? If you're a parent, victory for your kids? Right? Buying some stuff? You just need a little bit of joy and see so you tap and go just to get that little adrenaline rush you get when you buy something or go to something. It's sad, but it's true. Not John. John says, I have no greater joy than this than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And Paul says exactly the same thing. Look at verse 7. Well, how he feels about them. He says, it's right that I feel this way about you. Because I have you in my heart. Or in verse 8, he says, How deeply I miss you with the affection of Christ Jesus. There's not a shadow of a doubt of how he feels about them, yeah? The context that this was probably written in was in the context of Stoic philosophy. You may know a little bit about Stoic philosophy, but you'll know, if you don't, you'll know it when you hear it. The Stoics, they were really wary of making whole-of-life commitments to anything. And particularly anything that involved the passions. If you've heard statements like this, they've come from people who hold to Stoic philosophy, even though if they don't know it. They say things like this. You need to be cool. right? Don't get vulnerable. Don't get hurt. Don't, don't get emotionally committed to other people. Protect yourself. right? Rubbish. Right? Paul says, my whole life... My hope, my affections, my mind are bound up with you. He loves them and he feels for them. He's brothers and sisters in Christ. See, here's my question because I love you. Do you actively find joy in knowing that God has actually begun a good work in lots of the people of this room and he will carry that work to completion on the day of Christ Jesus? Do you find joy in that? Do you love that? Because you know the things that we find joy in are the things that we invest in. I'll tell you that much. Do you know how you can discover what someone is in, finds joy in the most? Just watch them talk. When they talk about the thing that they find joy in the most, what, what, what happens to their face? It lights up, right? And the things that bring you the most joy are the things that you invest in the most. You will clear your schedule for the thing that you enjoy the most. If you don't enjoy something, you won't clear your schedule for it. If you don't enjoy seeing God begin a work in someone 
and carry that work on towards the day of Christ Jesus, then you won't enjoy it. You won't invest in that. But if you find great joy in the fact that God begins a work in people when they hear the Lord Jesus, and you, and you want to carry that work towards the day of Christ Jesus, you, you'll, in, you'll invest in that. And so strongly does Paul feel about this that what does he do? He puts himself under an oath. Look at, look at verse 8. He says, For God is my witness of how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. I mean, why does Paul put himself under an oath, do you think? Do you think he puts himself under an oath because otherwise he's going to lie? No. He just basically saying, I swear to God, I miss you. I love you. Right? He finds joy in knowing that they are partners in the gospel. And he finds joy in knowing that God has begun a work in them and he will not quit and he will take it on to the day of completion when Jesus comes again. And the final thing I want to show you in this part of the letter is that Paul seems to find great joy in putting the gospel at the centre of all of his relationships with other people, with Christians. With other believers, he puts the gospel at the centre of their relationships. Because when Paul writes, right, he doesn't commend them like this. He doesn't say, guys, I think you're a fantastic church because of the way you hung out at the gladiators and you saw them you know, kill all those people and you had a good time at the social event at the Colosseum. Because right, they could have done that. That would have been in church outing. Right? Just as you do in sort of ancient Rome in that area. Right? He doesn't say, you guys are a great church because of that, that fantastic morning tea that you have. Like just the way that you bake those cookies. Mm, that's just fantastic. You're a great church. You guys are a fantastic church because from social event to social event, from one event to the other, you're just hanging out all the time and you just seem to just do things with each other. It's just terrific. Now, all those things are good, right? And we need to do them. Yeah? But they're not the centre. At the centre of our relationships is our passion and joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what binds us together. So I want to ask us, uh, what, what ties us together uh, as a congregation? You, you know how you work it out? You work it out by what we're going to talk about after church. And, and you know this because you know all your January conversations that you have? They always revolve around three things, right? The weather, the cricket, and the movies. Right? So how many times have you had this conversation in January? So where were you on that January, you know, that 46-degree day? And, you know, were you sweltering? And I was in a pool, and I had to put a glass of water over my head to make sure it didn't boil. And then, you have, then there's the cricket conversation, which is, oh, how about that Warner, right? He got 90 runs, and we still lost. Right, there's that conversation. And then there's which movie have you seen recently? That's all good, by the way. Like, it's weird, and can I say this? It's weird when people only talk about Jesus. You, you know, it's just a little bit strange. You know, someone comes up to you, there's no pleasantries, there's no anything else, there's just, right, they're just straight into it talking about Jesus. Right? That one person in every hundred Christians, right? Don't listen to this. But for the 99, the rest of us, can I say, can I challenge you that if the gospel is at the centre of our relationships, then let's make it what we talk about after church, yeah? You just come up to someone and you ask them about the weather and say about the cricket and what you've been doing in the movies and then you say, hey, what have you been reading in the Bible over January? And I saw you posted on Facebook one of the Psalms. Why was that so encouraging? And what have you been praying for and how are you going to serve this year? If the gospel is at the centre of our relationships, then let's talk about it. Not only that, what else is going to keep us together? Nothing else. Like, look around. Just, just have a look. 
Just look around the room. Don't be afraid. We can do it, right? Look, we're a bunch of misfits. Like, look at it, right? Okay, I'll speak for myself. I'm a misfit. Thanks for including me, right? But think about it. What else is going to keep us together other than the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and the shared passion we have in him? And that will make us socialize together. Why? Because we're committed to one another. We are partners in the gospel. Now, can I make an aside on this? Uh, I didn't share this in the morning, but I thought I'd share this with you tonight. Can you know that making the gospel at the centre of your relationships is actually what makes someone attractive? I'll tell you about this. So Lenora and I, we, in December, we celebrated 13 years of marriage. And can I say that what makes Lenore attractive today is her simple joy in the Lord Jesus Christ more than anything else? Right? We have been together, including our dating years, for 17 years, yeah? And can I say that what attracts me to her and what continues to attract me to Lenore is her simple joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And she helps put the gospel at the center of our relationship. Because the world's not telling us that. The world's telling us continue to try and be buff and smart and cultured and well-dressed and and funny because they're all the worldly things that are meant to keep the spark in the marriage, yeah? But after 13 years, I can say that none of those things even run a close second to the passion that Lenore has in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's funny, can I tell you this? If you put the gospel at the center of your friendships, you'll be surprised about who starts to become attractive to you. Because all those worldly things start to not matter when you put the gospel at the center of your relationships. right? You may be looking for someone who's buff and smart and cultured and funny and well-dressed and all these things. and But the simple joy that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ is what makes us attractive. yeah. And Paul demonstrates that. He does. He says, as Christians, put the gospel at the center of your relationships and find joy in it. So friends, I'm going to ask you this. Uh, I, I don't know what sort of temporary joy you've experienced over January. We had heaps of temporary joy. I love summer. Right? I love the beach. I love all the things that we can do. But where are you going to find deep, lasting, soul-satisfying joy? Where are you going to find it this year? Uh, start reading Philippians uh, as we go on this journey together. Uh, let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the partnership that we have in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that you have... And it brings us such great joy to know that the work that you have begun in each of us, that you will carry it on to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for that. And Father, we pray that you would help us, like Paul seems to have with the Philippians, that the gospel would be the centre of our relationships, that it would be what we talk about, it would be what we delight in, it would be what unites us together. Um, Father, we pray that you would help us to search for joy in the Lord Jesus Christ and not other things. And we pray in his great name. Amen.